This morning's passage comes from Luke chapter 18, the Gospel of Luke, the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Would you please be seated and would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the word, the very word of God who has come to this earth and has revealed you, O oh Father. And so we ask that this morning as we look together at your word, that your spirit would be at work, putting the old self to death, raising the new man in life through Christ Jesus. That you, O oh God, would be at work sanctifying our hearts, making us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, showing us more of him, through this, your word. We ask that you would do that for our good and for your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning, as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 18, I want to begin by sharing a, a little bit of an, uh, a story, actually an article uh, that I read a few weeks ago. One of you in the congregation a few months ago sent me an article, and it was an article from an investment firm. And the article, the authors of the article were making the argument that our generation is better off than any of the generations before us. They were making the argument actually that our generation is better off than any of the wealthiest people of any of the prior generations that we could imagine. And they shared a number of quantitative arguments for making their case. And here's a a few of the statistics they shared. They were comparing this generation just, for example, to the generation of the 1950s. They said in 1950, for example, less than 50% of the population had any health insurance at all. Two-thirds of the population didn't even have a way to cover one major medical incident, okay? They compare that to our generation. 1950, more than half of everyone over uh, the age of 65, men over the age of 65, were still working. Today, it's, it's less than 20% of men over the age of 65 still working. In 1950, 30% of the population over the age of 65 was in poverty. 
Today, it's less than 10% of our population. Over the age of 65, that's in poverty. They also talked about houses. They said in 1950, houses were more than one-third smaller, but families were more than one-third larger than they are today. And home ownership was 20% lower than it is today. And so they made the argument, every statistic that you could consider, our generation is more financially, fiscally, uh, more successful, more, they have more opportunities, more abilities. They have everything they could ever imagine compared to any generation before ours. In the article, they also quoted Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett said to a, a, a classroom full of students, he said, all of you and your neighbors have more than Norman Rockefeller ever had. Just think of it. Norman Rockefeller could never watch the World Series on TV. You can. If you think about the developments in medicine, the developments uh, in uh, 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 politics, the developments in government, the, the developments in transportation, every arena that you could consider, you have more than Norman Rockefeller had. And he made the argument that his classroom was full of uh, students that had more than the wealthiest generation just 50 or 100 years ago had. I, I share that with you because this morning as we look at Luke chapter 18, I think if that's true, then the conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler, it takes on a whole new meaning. It really does. Because Jesus speaks to a man who's an oddity in his culture, right? Jesus speaks to a man who had wealth, but the rest of the audience around Jesus likely didn't have wealth that the rich young ruler had. The rich young ruler stood out like a sore thumb in the conversation that Jesus has in Luke chapter 18, but if we're going to look at our generation and the people that are here this morning, we could likely say that all of us has more than the rich young ruler ever had. And then what Jesus begins to expose in the heart of the rich young ruler, the relationship between his wealth and his heart, it logically follows then that that would be likely true of us, that those things need to be exposed in our own hearts. As I've thought about this passage this past week, I keep saying in my mind, well, this isn't the, it's not just the Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. We could call this Jesus' interaction with the middle-class American, okay? And I know that's not exactly what's happening in the passage. It's the way I've conceived it, of it in my own mind this past week. So this morning as we look at Luke chapter 18, I just want you to know this passage is, is super applicable to us. Because we likely are going to wrestle and struggle over the very same things the rich young ruler struggles with in this passage in Luke chapter 18. So as we begin, I, I want to begin, I'm going to outline, it's on the insert in your bulletin, I'm going to outline it up here. I've got a picture that I want to draw as well. But I want to begin with the first point, and that's to look at the question, okay? The question that is asked in the 18th verse is Jesus is here in the 18th verse. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as we begin in this interaction that Jesus has with the rich young ruler, I believe that these events, Luke 17 and 18, they happen in a pretty quick succession, that these are not disconnected by a space of time, but they happen sort of one after the other. I believe that to be true because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record them in the same order. They record, for instance, the, this account of the little children all happening right before Jesus greets the rich young ruler. And so I think it's likely or probable that the rich young ruler had been hearing the things that Jesus had been saying. 
For instance, the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee, the tax collector going down from the temple justified, not the Pharisee. Or this prior interaction with the children when Jesus says, unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you cannot enter. And so I imagine that the rich young ruler, having heard the words of Jesus, is likely a little bit perplexed, okay? Maybe a little confused, befuddled. He had his own uh, preconceived notions about the kingdom of God, and he had just heard or witnessed a number of things that did not reconcile with his understanding of the kingdom of God. And so I imagine him in verse 18 with a little perplexion in his voice saying, but good teacher, what can I do? How may I have eternal life? Confused likely by the things that Jesus had already said about the children and about the tax collector. So he asks Jesus this question in verse 18, what can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It is what he says in verse 18, what must I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is the question that everyone has been asking Jesus throughout the entire gospel, okay? It gets articulated in different ways, but it's the same question. What must I do to to inherit the kingdom of God or to enter the kingdom of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nicodemus says, what must I do to be saved? It's all the same question. Everyone is asking, what must I do to be reconciled to God? What must I do to be near to Him? What must I do to be saved? Okay? And the way we've talked about it through the Gospel of Luke is we've talked about it through the words of Christ who often describes it as the kingdom of God. Okay? So this morning I'll talk about it in kingdom language again. And this is the picture I want to draw. I'm going to draw a castle just so you have a picture of the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God doesn't look like this, obviously. Okay? But an image in our minds of a castle the rich young ruler is asking about the kingdom of God, okay? And I want you to understand what underlies the question that he asks. The question that he asks is rooted all the way back uh, from creation forward. It's a question that has to do with the very design of God for humanity, okay? Because from the very beginning, God has been working among His people to keep them or to sustain them or to bring them into His kingdom. So let me tell you this from the very beginning, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Another way that we could describe the Garden of Eden, it is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. Through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns, it's wherever His children are in subjection to Him, right? It's wherever they're submitting to Him. It is the place where His children, they glorify Him and they enjoy Him forever. That's what was happening in the Garden. Their God was reigning, their Adam and Eve were in subjection to Him, they were glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever, and it was a beautiful thing, wasn't it? That's what was happening in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 2, as God creates and He makes Adam and Eve and He places them in the garden, one of the things that He reveals to them is the pathway whereby they would remain in His, in communion with Him, right? Within the kingdom under His subjection, glorifying Him and enjoying Him, right? And how does God reveal that in Genesis chapter 2? It's very simple. He says to them, I have made everything for you. I've made the the garden for your enjoyment. 
I've made the food, uh, the, the fruits of the trees for your, for your eating, for your sustenance. I've made the animals of the field for you to enjoy. I have placed the stars in the sky for the seasons and signs. It has all been made for you for your enjoyment. But, you remember the but, right? But, you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? This is the, if you want the theological phrase for it, it's the covenant of works. God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. If they obey it, they will live, right? But in the day that they surely, in the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die, okay? You remember this from Genesis chapter 2. One way of articulating what's happening there is that God tells Adam and Eve that if they are to do good or to do right, those are two words that the Bible uses, the same thing, to do good or to do right, they will remain in the kingdom of God. Okay? So far, so good. Making sense? Words that are used in Scripture. Okay? God reveals to His children what they are to do. And it's very simple. And yet we know what happens, right? Genesis 3, they eat of the tree. We talked about last week some of the sins that were involved in the fall. They eat of the tree, sin enters the world, and they surely die. Okay? And one of the things as God is speaking to Adam and He's speaking to Eve and He's speaking to the serpent, one of the things we, we realize is that something happens to this picture, right? It is no longer possible for humanity to do good or to do right and to remain part of the kingdom of God, to simply obey Him, right? What happens in the garden is a wall is formed. It's this big gate, okay? I know you can't completely see this, but this is a wall and a gate, all right? And this is, I would call it the wall of sin, Sin creates a barrier in Genesis 3. It creates a barrier between humanity and the kingdom of God. So much so that the original design, according to the covenant of works, that, that if we obey God, if we do according to His Word, very simply in Genesis 3, eat of everything, enjoy everything, just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because of the, the entrance of sin into the world, this is no longer possible. Sin prevents humanity from living according to God's design in obedience and enjoying His, His presence forever and being in His kingdom, all right? So, this impacts everything that's happening with the rich young ruler this morning. You see, this is what's behind the question of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Humanity, the world, for so long has lived as if this doesn't exist, Right? as if sin never entered the world. Uh, and people are always asking the question, well, what must I do? Okay, what must I do? What good can I do? What right can I do? And if you interact with any people in the world for any number, uh, a short amount of time, you will hear over and over again, well, if I just live right, if I just live in a good way, if I'm just good enough, th then I'll inherit eternal life. I'll, I'll participate in the kingdom, okay? It, it is... It is living in a naive way, not recognizing that sin has created this barrier now, okay? And thus, the rich young ruler asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The same passage, the same event is recorded in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. In Matthew 19, Matthew records the rich young ruler's words like this. The rich young ruler says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, that's the manifestation of 
this idea, apart from a knowledge of sin, apart from an understanding of how sin affects this picture, and it's the question that the rich young ruler is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, Jesus answers him. You see Jesus' response there. And if you read verse 19, you might immediately be thinking, is this like a side note? Jesus going off on a tangent. Rich young ruler asks, what must I do? And, the, uh, and, and Jesus answers him. And then Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But that's not a side note, okay? It's not a tangent. It's actually the introduction to everything that Jesus is about to say, okay? Because Jesus says, why do you call me good? And then he says, no one is good. And here's what he says, okay? And I just want, here's the Greek. A me ace hatheos. And I know that means nothing to you at all, okay? I know that means nothing to you at all, but I think it's important. This, this word right here is the word if. It's the Greek word if. And you look at your ESV and you say, well, there's no if there. Where's the if come in? Literally what Jesus says is there's no one good if they are not God alone, okay? And I, th and I think that begins to bring to light exactly what he means as he speaks to the rich young ruler. Jesus isn't making a side note. He is saying to the rich young ruler, there is no one good if they are not God alone. And his answer is not so much about who he is, okay? Jesus is indeed good, for he is indeed God, right? He's not answering so much that question. He's using the introduction, okay, good teacher, right? He's using the phrase that the rich young ruler uses himself to transition to an important conversation about who actually is good. No one is good if they are not God alone. You see, the rich young ruler, I imagine, wouldn't have said, okay, but I really think you're a good teacher. I don't think he would have been concerned at all at this moment with Jesus. I really do think in his heart he would have been convicted. Wait a second. Are you saying that I'm not good? That there is no way for me to do enough good or right? Are you saying that only God is good? It undermines everything that I've come to believe about my doing this, my ability to be part of the kingdom of God to inherit eternal life. So this is the question the rich young ruler asks, all right? Second thing I want to talk about then is the questioner, the questioner. I don't even know if that's a word. I don't think it is. Maybe it is. The questioner. It didn't get underlined in red, so I assumed it was, okay? The questioner, talking about the man who's asking the question. In verse 20, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You see, as, as Jesus answers the rich young ruler, it's obvious, as it always is, when Jesus is speaking to an individual, it's obvious that he perceives some of the deep thoughts of his heart. It's obvious as he speaks to the rich young ruler that he kind of understands who this man is. No, he does understand who this man is, and he understands the things that he holds dear in his heart, the convictions, the, the root or core convictions at the heart of the rich man, the rich young ruler. 
And so we recognize not only is he, is he a wealthy man and not only does he have affluence in his society, but Jesus recognizes that he is very much interested in and committed to the commandments of God, okay? That he held these things in high esteem and he viewed himself as being capable or able of doing all of these things. And so Jesus asks him the question, do you know the commandments? Actually, in this in, in, in Luke's gospel, it says, you know the commandments, right? But in Matthew and in Mark, he asks the question. In Matthew 19, he literally says to him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler says, well, which ones? Well, which ones, right? It kind of gives you a picture of what's happening in this passage. Jesus recognizes that this man highly values the commandments. And so he begins by asking him, hey, you know the commands, right? You know what the commandments are. And so this is the man asking the question, the questioner. And Jesus begins to share with him five commandments. Five commandments from the Ten Commandments. If my math is correct, it's commandment five through nine, okay? They're the, primarily the interpersonal commands. They're the ones that have to do with you and I, okay? The way we are to treat one another. Why does Jesus begin with these five? Why not go through one through four? Why does he not include the tenth commandment? Okay. There's a lot of possibilities. These commandments are easier to measure in some ways, right? They have to do with the ways that we treat each other. I think that people, by and large, conceive of these as being easier to follow. I think that was probably true for the rich young ruler. But what I ultimately think is happening in this passage is that Jesus is preparing the rich young ruler for a, a big reveal, okay, an aha moment. He's preparing the rich young ruler for the moment where he's going to kind of pull back the, the veil or pull back the curtain, and it's going to be obvious to the rich young ruler that something has been exposed in his heart. Going through commandments five through nine is really the process of preparing the rich young ruler for that, okay? So he's going through the commands, and I imagine that as he is speaking to the rich young ruler, he says, do not commit adultery. And the rich young ruler is saying, yeah, I've, I've done pretty good with that. Uh, do not steal. And the rich young ruler is like, yeah, I haven't stolen, I don't think. And, and every step of the way, the rich young ruler is getting kind of more and more excited, right? Yeah, I've done that. I've, I've been pretty good with that. Okay, and, and Jesus is preparing him for the moment when he's going to say, okay, but one more thing. And it's, the whole thing is going to kind of implode in his mind. I, I conceive of it like this. There's, maybe there's a helpful analogy. When we lived in Philadelphia, well, when we were in seminary in Philadelphia, we lived in a suburb of Philadelphia. We lived in Elkins Park. So if you think about Philadelphia, Elkins Park is a northern suburb of Philadelphia. And in the last year of seminary, we decided we were going to flip a house, and it was in Haverford, which is a southern suburb of Philadelphia, okay? Elkins Park is only 15 miles from Haverford, all right? But it usually takes about an hour and a half or two hours to go from Elkins Park to Haverford, okay? So we bought this house. Every Saturday, we would load up the car or load up the truck with all the tools and the materials. We would set out early in the morning. We would make the two-hour drive down the Northeast Extension, and we would get to Haverford to work on the house. Now, along the drive, the whole drive, we were talking about the work we were going to do, okay? How excited about the project we were and how we were on our schedule, we were going to get one week ahead and we were moving along and the progress was being made and the whole conversation on the drive was about 
whatever we were going to be doing that day. It was really exciting, okay? And I can remember at least one time, but it probably happened two or three times, the two-hour drive down the Northeast Extension, we arrive in Haverford, we begin to unload the truck, and I would say to my wife, hey, you got the key to the house, right? And then she would say, no, I thought you brought the key to the house, okay? And it would be like this deflating moment. And then we would sit and we would do the math. Okay, we left at 7, we got here at 9. If we leave right now, we get back north at 11.30. The lunch traffic, we'll get back here at 2.30. we got to leave by 3. There's no way, okay? And we would literally just call it quits for the day. Go home, punt for another week, okay? It was, it was a really deflating moment. I think one of the things that made it even harder was the conversation for two hours in the car about the work we were going to get done, the progress we were going to make, and how we were going to be one week closer to being finished with this house, right? And you realize you don't have the key. I, that's exactly what Jesus is doing as he goes through the five commandments. He's speaking to the rich young ruler who's really getting pumped and jazzed about how good he's been at obeying these commandments, and he's getting more and more excited, and he's ready for Jesus to say, well done, you're going to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, but wait, there's one thing. And it totally rocks the world of the rich young ruler, okay? That's what Jesus is doing as he interacts with this man, the questioner, the rich young ruler who approaches him about this issue. Now, what it leads into then is the third thing on your insert. What it leads into is the better question, okay? It leads to the better question. You see, this passage, it began with a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. It's a good question, but there's a better question. And see, what Jesus is doing is very simple. He is leading the rich young ruler. He's leading his audience to asking a more significant question. Let me read this part of the passage, and you'll see what's happening here. The, the rich young ruler, in verse 21, we find out really all we need to know about the rich young ruler. In verse 21, he says, all of these things I have obeyed since my youth. That is the manifestation of everything we just talked about. That is his heart speaking about how great he thinks he has done. And then Jesus says in verse 22, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. As I thought about this, the words that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler, I thought, man, this would be great for a capital campaign. Here's what I say to the congregation, okay? Just give everything you have, and you will inherit the kingdom of God. But that would be wrong, right? It's not what, it's not what Jesus is saying. None of us believes that Jesus is, is here saying, if you give everything financially, then you break the sin barrier, you, you access the kingdom of God. None of us believes that, right? And it is, it's important that we, we recognize this is a, it's a personal, it is a person who Jesus is responding to in a personal way. And we see this all over the Gospels, don't we? Every time someone asks Jesus a question about in, uh, eternal life or salvation or the kingdom, he answers them in a slightly different way, doesn't he? And he talks about disowning family. He talks about giving everything you have. He talks about confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. He talks about believing like a child or accessing the kingdom like a child. Every person he gives a slightly different response to. And you see what Jesus is doing. Every step of the way, he is working to expose the heart of the individual he's speaking with. Okay? I, I've phrased it like this. He's not telling the rich young ruler the way to heaven. 
He's showing him the way to receive the way to heaven, okay? By exposing his heart, he's bringing him to a place where salvation that is offered in the gospel can really be received, okay? So this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. You see, Jesus, as, as he's speaking to the rich young ruler, he's working in such a way that the ruler and the audience around him will say, oh, that's what sin does. That's the manifestation of my heart. That's the idolatry now brought to the surface that must be reconciled, and Jesus forces everyone He speaks to. He forces them to ask this question. This is the best question. This is the best possible question. Anybody that interacts with Jesus could ask, okay? In verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? That's verse 26. You heard what Jesus just said about the rich man, right? Well, wealth is a, is a big hindrance. It is easier for an, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the people standing around are saying, wait a second. Then who? Then how is it possible for any of us? A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. We know that. Then who can be saved? And I think Jesus, as they're asking that question, I have to imagine Jesus is like getting a big smile on his face, okay? This is one of those moments where he's like, they get it. They understand. They are beginning to understand exactly what I'm saying. And this is the revelation of everything that we just talked about. Yes, it's part of the original design of God. And yes, this original design, it perpetuates. We experience it in our innermost being. It's why we desire to do good or to do right. There's something built in us that gives us that desire. And yet, if we understand the nature of sin, what we realize Jesus is saying is that this wall, this barrier, it is larger and wider and deeper and more treacherous than you ever realize. And it cannot be crossed. It cannot be opened by you simply doing good or doing right. It is impossible. And so people will say, then who can be saved? How is it possible for anyone to access the kingdom of God. You see, in a, a few short sentences, Jesus exposes the heart of the rich young ruler, and he shows him the idols of his heart, right? And the rich young ruler goes away sad because he, he realized. He realized that his heart was given to something else. It's a violation of the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before you, right? You shall not create for yourself any graven images and bow down and worship them. And yet this is exactly what Jesus exposes in the heart of the rich young ruler. And he realizes at that moment that there is nothing that he can do to access the kingdom of God. You know, in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, as Jesus is speaking, it said that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And so he told him, he told him this very thing. He looked at him and he loved him. This is, it's a manifestation of Jesus' love. It's a revelation that Jesus loves so greatly and so deeply his children that he will reveal to them the nature of their sin. He will expose it and he will cause them to be dismayed, to be lost, to be convicted over their own sin. And it, it moves 
Jesus' audience, and it moves those who are listening to what Jesus says here in verse 27, okay? Those who heard it said, then, who can be saved? That is, those who heard it said, what hope is there? What hope is there? And Jesus says to them in verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. That, that is the preparation for the gospel. The gospel is the thing that is impossible with men that is now possible with God. The thing that's coming in this gospel in a few short chapters is, the, it is again, the manifestation of this. It is impossible with men, but it is possible with God. Now, let me bring this all together then and tell you how this is a, applicable to us, okay? It's very interesting that this is the season of life for our church. We're in the midst of this capital campaign, and I love, I love this. I really do enjoy it, okay? I was visiting, I've been visiting families and talking about the capital campaign, and one family that I visited said, we love capital campaigns. This is great. It brings the church together. It challenges us. It stretches us. This is amazing. We love it. I, I resonate with that. I know not everybody resonates with that. I do. I love it because we get to talk about money, okay? We get to talk about money. We could talk about money anytime we want, but we get to talk about money, especially during capital campaign. And you know, if all of the statistics are true that I shared with you at the beginning of the service, then we need to talk about those things, don't we, right? Because if it is true of the rich young ruler that he has this idolatry in his heart because of his wealth and because of his things, it is likely true that we wrestle with those very same things. It is likely true that hidden deep in our hearts we find great security in our wealth, in our belongings, in our possessions. And those things need to be challenged. They need to be brought out. They have to be exposed, okay? One of the great things I've loved about the capital campaign is this devotional we're going through. If you're going through it, I'm going to continue to encourage you to go through it, okay? If you're going through it, it asks all these questions that are designed to expose the idolatry of our heart. Questions like, how much money do you think you need to die with? Questions like, what if God called you to decrease, to decrease your standard of living? And everybody says, decrease your standard of living? What? That's not American? What if God is calling you to do something, okay? How much money or possessions or belongings would you need to do that thing? It's a really good question. See, God always provides the means that are necessary to do the thing that He's calling you to do, okay? These questions are the same as, well, they're similar to the question that Jesus asks. They're questions that are designed to go deep into our hearts and to say, whoa, something is going on here. I wasn't aware of this. And now it's exposed and my securities are brought to light. And I'm, and I'm wondering, well, what does this mean, okay? You see, for all of us, I believe it's true for America in general that we have a working confession in our hearts concerning our money, right? My money is the Lord my God. My money given me a land that I, that I did not deserve. My money has given me clothes and possessions that I did not have before. My money gives me security. And it makes me feel good about myself, okay? And I know we don't say that. You don't pray that at night, I hope. And yet, I think it's a functional reality of our hearts, okay? That we depend upon our possessions. That's what Jesus is exposing in the rich young ruler, okay? He's exposing the fact that his heart is given to his money, 
It is committed to it. He finds his security, his hope. Everything that God is meant to give to his children, we find in our possessions. That's what the rich young ruler is doing, okay? And Jesus exposes that for him. You see, I simply want to encourage you with this. This is a really good exercise for Christians to go through, right? This is part of God's design for the church. It's part of His design for His Word. It's part of the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's part of the reason that we have community with one another because we're meant to challenge the idols of one another's hearts, okay? And we ought to be asking ourselves and one another, what are the idols of our hearts? How do we expose them? And then how do we realize that this is bigger and greater and deeper than we ever fathomed how sin is wreaking havoc in our hearts. How sin makes us depend on anything else other than God. How sin is creating in us other things subtly, quietly, that we give our hearts to, that we worship in a functional way. That's the question that Jesus asked. It's the reason he asked the question. And so that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. That's what we're to be asking one another. That's what we're to be praying about. That's what we're to be exhorting one another about, to encourage each other concerning. And then the reality of this passage will be manifest in our lives. Then we will ask the question, well, then who can be saved? And that as we hear the words of Christ Jesus, with man, this is impossible. But with God, this is possible. We will realize as our hearts are exposed that the offer of the gospel through Jesus Christ our Lord is for salvation. That as much as we were designed to do good and to do right, to be with God in communion with Him forever, that because of the barrier created by sin, only by the work of Jesus Christ who is our Savior, what is now impossible with man is made possible with God. That we can be reconciled and redeemed and that you and I can have victory over our sin victory over the idols of our hearts, victory over everything that separates us from God, that we can inherit eternal life, as the rich young ruler asked. Would you please join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has given himself a ransom for many. We thank you, Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that you came to this earth and that you are constantly working to expose our hearts. We thank you for these words, which are applicable, I believe, to our society, our community, our day and age. In a generation that has more wealth than any generation before us, a generation that is often inclined to depend upon our wealth. We ask, Lord God, that among your children, you would challenge the idols of our hearts, that you would bring them to the surface, that you would expose them by your Spirit who shines light on our hearts, and that you would cause us in confession and repentance to come to you that we would cast our burdens upon you, that we would recognize in both word and deed that we can do nothing to save ourselves, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. We ask, Lord, 
that you would be glorified as you work within your people, as you challenge us, as you put to death the idols, the sins of the flesh, all the things that entangle and ensnare us, and you raise us in new life with Christ Jesus. We thank you, our Father. We thank you, Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, Spirit of God, who works in and among your people. We ask that you would continue that work here among us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.